Welcome to the Godspeed Institute, an enlightening and positive forum exploring all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems as an on-air classroom in an effort to help people better understand each other, promote tolerance, and foster peace. I'm your host, Care Hallandbeck. Since the beginning of man's appearance on this planet, there has been a continual succession of spiritual teachers. Throughout the ages, the external form of this knowledge has changed to meet the shifting needs of different societies and geographical regions. Yet, internally, all the great religious forms are united in the light. These are the words of Dr. Stuart Bitkoff. Stuart holds a doctorate of education and is an avid student of Sufi mysticism and the perennial philosophy. He is the author of The Ferryman's Dream, A Commuter's Guide to Enlightenment, and Sufism for the Western Seeker, which was nominated for Book of the Year by Forward Magazine in the adult nonfiction religious category. Dr. Bitkoff is a frequent contributor to Sufism and Inquiry and Sacred Journey Magazine and writes for multiple online entities, including the Philadelphia Spirituality Examiner, Wisdom Magazine, New Age Journal, and more. He's also a contributor to the Godspeed Institute, and we always love to have him on the program. Today, we're going to explore the secret teachings and where they are today. Stuart, welcome to the program, and thanks so much for being with us again. I care. It's good to hear your voice and talk about something that I'm excited about. Well, that's great. That's great. Uh, we're always excited about our spiritual journeys and quests here. So why don't I just begin by asking, what's on your mind these days on that considerable agile mind of yours? <laughs> well, there's a couple of things. One, certainly this paper that I wrote and that we're going to talk about. And then also, um, I got a book that I'm trying to get published that I've been working on for a while. And then starting to do some new things, reaching out into the world, doing some speaking engagements and some retreats and things like that. So I'm trying to reach out and help spread this message of hope, love, and joy. And um, please that, you know, you've joined me in helping to do this. Now, the secret teaching or the secret doctrine, um, I guess was first introduced in the West by one of the people, Madame Blavatsky in the late 1800s. And there's been a underpinning or rumors that there's been a secret teaching throughout the ages. People like Gurdjieff and um, people like that, more modern people. And the, the secret teaching or the secret doctrine, some people call it the perennial philosophy, people often wondered what that was. Now, in, in years past, when the alchemists were doing their alchemy, the secret teaching or doctrine was how to transmute man, if you will, whose clay into gold. And the gold was the secret elusive teaching. Now, a secret is really something only one person knows. So once we begin talking about it, it's no longer a secret. Now, we're living in an age where we can do that. Don't forget, when you look at the history of mankind and the history of religions, if people talked about things that weren't the company word or that, weren't, that didn't go along with the 
traditional religious teachings, they were killed. So in our age, we're able to discuss something like this without worrying too much about a backfire on it. Now, early on in my training, and as, you, as you've heard my story several times, I was never looking for any of this kind of material. I was never looking for spiritual help or a secret teaching or anything like that, but there are many people who spend their whole life looking for this, you know, a way of mysticism, a way of metaphysics. I Manly P. Hall wrote a classic called Secret Teachings in All Ages, which was really about the esoteric, mystical teachings and all these different paths and presentations. And it's a, an occult classic, if you will. Very hard to understand. Very hard to understand. Now, Idris Shah, in the book The Sufis, makes this presentation of all these occult teachings, all these secret inner teachings that you would get in a mystical school or in the Great Pyramid, if you will, what were the adepts teaching in the Great Pyramid, you, you get an updating of that, and Shah talks about that. If you could just discern a little more between these two uh, texts, what was it about the first one you said that was very hard to understand? Well, it's very esoteric, and there's all these rules and rituals. You have to understand things like astrology uh, yeah, at a very, very high level, numerology, and there's obscure kinds of references that while they made sense to in trade unions and in different cultures and times, they really don't translate very easily to our modern time. And what's presented in a book, if you will, it's really isn't a secret teaching. Because secrets, like if you use um, any secret society that we have, they're not going to put their teachings right out there unless, unless it's being offered by somebody who is a member of that society, like the Masons. You know, what we read about the Masons is from secondhand sources, people who have studied this and are writing about it, scholars. Very rarely are you hearing from somebody who is a high-level Mason telling you what the inner teaching is. So this, this elusiveness of the secret teaching comes about a couple of ways. And people won't, won't divulge that because they're afraid of their life. And then, two, there's a spiritual dimension to it, which really is very hard to put into words. So in Manley P. Hall's book, he put together, it's, it's a beautiful book with beautiful pictures and texts, but it's very hard for the average person to understand what is going on here. Now, what Idris Shah did in his book, The Sufis, he pulled together all these different remnants of all these metaphysical societies, and he united them, if you will, under the rubric of Sufism. Now, he got, took a lot of heat for that, but the book, The Sufi, talks about, talks about this, and the one chapter is called The Secret Doctrine, about where it came from and how it presented itself throughout the different times and ages. Why did he take a lot of heat for it? Because, once again, if somebody's saying that there's a common thread and you have all these individual organizations, or you're pointing out that they may have misrepresented or misunderstood certain symbols, certain kinds of things, 
you get a lot of heat for that. If you say that, that like, a, I'm going to make the statement, and I have any number of times, that there's an inner connection between Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, a lot of people would say, yeah, he's right, and a lot of other people would say, no, he's wrong. What is he talking about? So this book, The Sufis, was a landmark book pulling together all of these remnant uh, metaphysical societies that have existed since the beginning of time. And to go back to the learning that we were presented with is that it is tradition that since the very beginning of time there's been a hierarchy or a group of masters who have ensured that the spiritual knowledge has flourished in each, each age and time. And that's changed. The outer presentation has changed because people change. What was presented 2,000 years ago in Judaism as a father who's a benevolent and maybe sometimes mean with a beard and all of that is different than what in our society, which is a scientific society, talks about string theory and an interconnectedness between everything in the universe. Right. So, you know, the first universal law is that all is one right. and that we're all connected. And so we can understand that from a scientific point of view and have to look back and say, well, you know, the presentation of God as a benevolent or an angry father served its purpose back then. Mm. And it needs to be changed, but this flow of wisdom, this flow of spirit, this flow of light, was ever since the beginning of time. And, and, and you know, also, I, I think that even with these, um, you know, erstwhile or, or the early images of God, as you mentioned, along that same timeline, there's, a, there's another timeline going on that reflects a mystical tradition also going way back. For example, someone like Teresa of Avila uh, was writing The Interior Castle and having ecstatic mystical experiences, while at the same time, this other idea of God and authority and such was, you know, continuing in an institutional church. So for me, when I look along the timeline of religion, from my background and from my experience, I see this uniting mystical tradition across all faiths uh, acting as like a bridge with some similar language and similar vision as well and imagery, and also acting in a way as an antidote <laughs> to some, some of the stuff the institutional religions were going through as a corporate body at the time. So there's a, like a timelessness that, that is coming from the mystical traditions. And I guess I want to ask you right now, because you have so many wonderful phrases um, in the article that you've written, the message, the wine, the elixir, all these beautiful, delicious kind of phrases. What inspired you to pull together these thoughts right now at this time? Well, one of my friends has been talking to me, and he was a friend in, in the first mystical school we, we've been in, and I've known him for 30 or 40 years. And he knows that I've embarked upon this going out into the world more than I've ever had before. And he said, well, Stu, what is the message that you're trying to get out there? Which was a pretty good question to ask me, because I'd written a number of books, and I could be all over the place on different things. And... Then I got the inner order, so to speak, to write this 
um, article about the secret teaching because or the secret doctrine because that was day one in the mystical school. Day one was, you know, we're all connected and we're going to show you what this connection is. And we experienced it. And this is the eternal message. It changes. It shifts. You know, you go into the organized religious part of it, but alongside it, as you say, there's the mystical tradition for those people who need to drink of this, who won't be satisfied by the standard teachings. Standard teachings help a lot of people, but for other people, they're left wanting. So why I wrote it at this point was, one, one of my friends got me thinking about it, what it was my message, and it was the ancient message of oneness and that we're all one and we should all love each other. And then the, sec- the second part was I got the orders, the <laughs> inner orders. Okay, begin putting this down in a way, coherent way, that people will understand. Pull it together. And so people can react to it. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I'd say that's a, you have a good friend there because that's important. Now, when you refer to the secret teaching, it's an inner spiritual knowing or experience of the divine. Um, you also say that uh, th- the nature of the message has always been the same, but we've forgotten it. Can you share some about that? Well, the message has always been the same. We are the ones who are forgotten. The religion is one, and humanity has a common source. Over time, because people are different culturally, messages and religious forms vary. This confuses people. Okay, so people get confused with why some people practice, you know, they pray on Saturday and others on Sunday, why some don't eat pork, others do eat pork, why people dress a certain way, why people believe all these different kinds of things, because the external piece is different. This confuses people. And then the, the rest of the message is that the light, which is a synonym for God or source, is the binding force of the universe and is the mother and father of us all. It is the great river from which we all came. On the surface, the river's waters shift due to changing currents and wind, yet beneath the surface, the water remains calm and tranquil. In this age, people are frightened and searching for something to help ease their fear and unite them. It is there, but we have forgotten to go deep and embrace our common spiritual heritage. Within each, the light is waiting to bring us home and illumine the darkness. That's the message, is that the religions are one. We're all united on the surface water. It's different underneath, which is the symbol for the inner mystical connection is all the same, and that we're frightened in these terrible dark times. And in order to illuminate this darkness, we have to go in ourselves and find this light, which is already there, and use it to help make the world better. Mm. And that is the ancient message. Now, Stuart, you say also in terms of forgetting who we are, uh, that in part it's because of the beauty and variety of this physical world and that we can get caught up forgetting for a time who we are and that we try to fill an empty place. 
with all manner of things and people. Can you share a little more about this, and, and what are some of the barriers uh, in the remembering? You know, the first universal law is oneness of creation. The second or third might be that there's a duality, that we see two things. So there's physical reality and spirit in this presentation that we see before us. We came here to experience that. Either we chose it or we were sent here, depending upon your point of view, to do that. And we forget because it's so beautiful, and our bodies are pleasure machines. <laughs> we enjoy eating, we enjoy smelling beautiful flowers, seeing things, seeing this wondrous earth. And it's easy to, it's easy to get caught up in the sensory pleasures of this beautiful place and forget for a time what it all means, what it's connected to, because, because those things are connected in many ways to our lower self, our lower sensory kinds of things. Now, inside all of us, there's an empty place that can only be filled by the light. This, this empty place creates a friction inside us because there's an unease. And we fill it. So some people go around filling it with money, power, beautiful flowers, lovers, all kinds of things. And they're all there to be enjoyed because why they were created. Now, we won't be satisfied unless we fill this empty place, this void inside us, with the light. And the light is really a balancing factor, which it doesn't take the place in this respect, to all these other things. We're still to enjoy our lives, but it helps balance us and helps us not overdo these things to the exclusion of others. And that's what gets us in trouble. For example, that makes like sense. Going, yeah. if, I, if I like going to work and making money and spending it, that's a good thing because the world benefits. I'm participating in the world. But if I do too much of that, I can get sick. I can try to cheat people so I can get more money. So what the light and this empty place, filling it and remembering who we are, does, it balances that pull of the lower self. Yeah. Yes, and it's interesting because uh, uh, at the beginning of our interview, you mentioned um, the phrase, all is one, being a, like a universal law. Um, so the, are you saying that the experience here of being human on this earth is where the duality lies? And, is, and so it's in our human form that this is where the spirit and physicality become somewhat, as you, it sounds like you're saying there's a bit of a conflict. Well, yeah, the, the conflict is one type of word. Another type of word is, you know, multiple expressions thereof. You know, the physical, the spiritual, in order to, for us to know it, has to take on a physical form. So the tree that I'm looking at outside my window is also a part of God but it takes on a physical form. So there's, you know, in all dualities, even psychologists tell us, even in all dualities, there's a oneness. You know, happiness and sadness are one. Now you say, well, how are they one? They're completely opposite ends. Well, they're both strong emotions. Right, right, like a paradox as well. That's you know. right. Yeah, so, so, <laughs> so uh, there's the beautiful nature to and in the flowers to enjoy then there's also the sawmill parkway and the cross Bronx expressway and, <laughs> that's right, that's right. There's and life uh, and there's death there's all these things 
and there are explanations for them, and the lasting ones are interconnections. Mm. You know, it's uh, you know, you can tell somebody the answer to that. That's one kind of learning. But then experiencing yourself and being connected with it inside, that is the more lasting kind of um, knowing, if you will. And that's what the mystics talk about, knowing. Okay. I I know that this duality exists so I can transcend it and participate in it. Right. Right. That's great. That reminds me, just on a different note, of one of my favorite books, um, uh, years ago was something called The Home Planet, uh, which was actually published by NASA. It's an enormous book um, of uh, space travel. And the astronauts up there, very often from all countries around the world, you know, use this common language of science and very, in a very experiential way uh, describe their experience of being, say, on, the, you know, on, a, on, a, on a space walk, looking at Earth uh, from so far away uh, in, a, in almost a, a mystical light um and in a, in a way that unites uh everyone as you know needing to be in this physical form in order to experience this but at the same time being just one kind of nerve ending um that's observing uh you know all of life that's right from out in space the earth is all one planet all right. the things that go on in there all the love fear conflict it's all one thing hmm. Well, that's, that's just an interesting concept about the, the duality. So now, you know, in our time today, there's so much happening. One could even say that the, in many ways we're fragmenting more and more as we're coming together more and more through our technology, um, which is another aspect uh, of this. But when you say, as you did before, that we're all one family and that all the religions are one, um, I'd like to ask you to explore that a little more. How are all the religions one? Well, as I watch the History Channel, they start talking about DNA analysis for early people, and and they're starting to get leanings that we all came, at least DNA-wise, from certain population centers, at least if I understood right what I was watching on TV. So scientists begin to look, looking at this DNA coming together kinds of things. So physically, you know, I think they think there was a couple of places on the planet where uh, life sprung up or however was planted, if you believe in aliens coming here or whatever, or God putting people down here. And I think they're starting to look at those kinds of comparisons from, from the DNA record kind of a thing. But just from the simplicity of it that we're all human beings, And we all came from the same source, and we could argue what that source was, but we all came from the same source. And we're all all children of light. We all bleed. We all think. We all procreate the same way. We all need food. So you can say we're one species. You can say we're from one family. Now, if you go back to the traditional... um, Biblical accounts, you know, Adam and Eve is the first mother and father kind of a thing, whether that's symbolic language or whether that's actual and whether there were multiple places where that occurred. We don't really know. We don't really know what's going on. But when the Sufis talk about this, they say, our, our home is far beyond the stars. And we came here 
to go do, create, and do all kinds of things, and then return back on the cosmic journey, back to that place, joining in kingship. And what they mean by kingship is being creator. We create our own reality. People don't ordinarily stop and sit and think about themselves as creators of their day. You know, they get up in the morning and they make a decision about what cereal to eat. Well, they're creating their breakfast at that point. So most of the things that we do, we are creators. And so in a lot of respects, we're all one family. Now, people, usually rulers or people who want money or who want things like that, have a reason to divide people. And this is where the Sufis get into this whole notion of higher self, lower self, being really the major problem of what's going on in the world today, is that there are a lot of people who give in to their lower self, which is basically a fear-based thing, and they need, they need stuff. They need more stuff than the average person, and they're going to take it. Hmm. Yes, now, and I, and I want to get into that about love and fear shortly, but I have a question first. <laughs> uh-huh. you, when you say that we are creators of our day, human beings from a creator, creator standpoint like that, is that a general Sufi belief about our role as human beings? And does that, I mean, for those, I might need to remind, Sufism is the uh, mystical uh, tradition of Islam. Would that definition also refer to other beliefs within Islam? Well, once again, there, there are some schools, and I adhere to the school that Sufism or whatever what we're talking about when we talk about that way of knowing predates Islam. But certainly in our world today, that's where the current is coming from. There's a strong current from Islam with Sufism. And basically in the Quran, it comes right out and said, man is God's vicegerent or representative on this planet. Okay, so one has to look at where, what, what is mean, what is meant by vicegerent or representative. Once again, we're talking about a translation of a word from Arabic into English. What does that mean? And, you know, in the Old Testament, it said that God created man in his likeness, you know, her likeness, you know, go from the female side. Yes, I, um, think, I think it says male and female, he created them in our image. Right. And what is yeah. likeness? mean once again if you take that as a representative term what are we talking about mm. we have free will we have consciousness we can create or see all these things that we've created and good bad and some you know ugly wars um, you know solutions to illnesses and we create all of that so not to think of yourself as a creator is you're missing part of your education mm. because you're missing part of your skill set. You know, people think, well, an artist is a creator or a craftsman is a creator. Sure they are. But every person, we create our thoughts every moment of the day. Mm. You know, it's like a TV station that's always on. Mm. And what's that about? What is consciousness about? And thought and managing our thoughts and one of the first things that we learned about was how to manage your thoughts. And what we're learning today in our modern scientific age is our thoughts have a great deal to do with our health, 
the way we look at the world, and our moods. Yeah, that's right. We're about halfway through the program, Stuart. I just want you to stay on the line. I'm just going to take a short break. This is Care Hallenbeck, and you're listening to the Godspeed Institute, a program dedicated to spiritually-based living and to religious tolerance. When we return from the break, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Stuart Bitkoff, student of Sufism and author of A Commuter's Guide to Enlightenment, Sufism for the Western Seeker, and The Ferryman's Dream. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Godspeed Institute. You're live with CARE, and we're speaking with student of Sufism and author Dr. Stuart Bitkoff about the secret teachings or hidden ways of knowing. Now, Stuart, in the last part of the program, we were getting into deep territory there, <laughs> which I really enjoy um, regarding our role as, as human beings, as people alive on earth, as created by God, and as creators ourselves of our own lives and our own day. We were beginning also to talk about the effects of, of love and fear. And could you share some about from your own work and your, and your more recent article, uh, what you mean when we're talking about love and fear in the arena of the of the forgetting of our inner knowing? One of the things we, we were learning about in controlling our consciousness is the effects of emotions and the effects of certain thoughts. If I'm walking around thinking I hate my boss, that's creating an energy and that's blocking other things from it. Now, one of the 
uh, other things from happening inside of me. Now, if I'm studying in a mystical school, I want this spiritual knowing to come forward. Things like thoughts like, I don't like my boss, I hate him or hate her, have to be disarmed. In order to disarm something, you have to understand it. And one of the things that I came across or we were taught was that all emotions basically arise from two basic human emotions, love and fear. And that took me years to get my head around that. And one of the ways we were taught to look at something or examine something was keep it in a neutral position. I'm not looking to prove or disprove. I'm looking to look at this clearly. If I say all human emotions, and I don't know how many there are, that could be 100, that could be 150, derive from love, these two basic things of love and fear, does that work? When, when, when your wife talks to you or your daughter or your son talks to you and they're upset about something and they're trying to figure out something, first thing that I think about is, okay, what's operating here? Is it love or it's fear? And try to work my way back and see whether that um, structure is useful and works in this particular kind of situation. Or if I come home and I'm real upset, what am I upset about? You know, am I afraid of something or am I disliking something? And I want to know this so I can disarm it. I want to quiet it so I can get beyond it and go to something else. So this notion of everything being hooked up to love and fear is something that people have to work on themselves. I accept that as a working premise, but that took me 20 years. It was not something I thought of right away. I dismissed it. Are you kidding me? Working in a psychiatric hospital, I see all of these emotions. Mm. You're telling me it's just two different things going on here? And I find for the most part I can answer that with some thought mm. and some uh, working out. Would you say that there are some expressions, let's say, of, of righteous anger when something is really wrong or if someone in the world has done something very wrong that would come from love? Well, mostly anger comes from, I would think, a fear of, of something, fear that love will be taken away or fear that I'll be harmed. Anger is a protective mechanism. So if I'm going to talk generally, you know, why do I get angry at somebody? Because they don't agree with me or they, you know, they disagree with me. And what does that mean to me, that they're disagreeing me? I'm afraid that they, they won't like me, or, and then, then that like gets turned to love. They, you know, love, like, there's all kinds of emotions attached to that. Or that I'm wrong, and if I'm wrong, what am I afraid of? That I made a mistake? So anger and fear and all of these kinds of things, love, anger, fear, get entwined, and sometimes it's not easy to figure it all out, but in the learning process of how my mind works and how it gets entwined with my emotions, I'm doing this, one, so I can live a better life, and two, so I can still that stuff so something else which is inside of me, this light, this energy, can come forward because it doesn't ordinarily come forward when there's a whole lot of static 
in my system. Yes, and yes. That's, that's the premise you work with. Now, in your paper, you also um, refer to many levels of help. And perhaps this is a good place to explore this, that throughout our stay in this world, we're helped by many. Can you share about some of this on the physical and, and spiritual plane? Absolutely. I think, you know, um, when we look back at our lives, anybody who's accomplished anything, and it's a very rare person who's done that all on their own, whether it's completed school, you had to have teachers to help you or parents to help you, um, or in work, if you get ahead, somebody has to help you, give you a helping hand or teach you something or those kinds of things. So school, work, you know, we all benefit from the help of others. And similarly, like in this industrialized age where we live on, where we don't grow our own food and all of those, we couldn't live without the help of all of this, this whole food chain that's been set up. And so this helping each other is a natural part of being a human being. It's a basic part of being a human being. Now, you know, as it is above, so it is below. So if the nature of helping each other is present here, it's the same above. And once again, when you come across a teacher whose basic job is to help people in many different ways, many different levels, you can see that very, very clearly. Or you see a priest or, or a nun or, or somebody like that, a holy person who re literally exists just to help others. Or a mother. I mean, I, you know, I learned so much from my mother when it came to love and helping um, so there, on a worldly level, there's a lot of this. And then when you talk about traditions, mystical and spiritual traditions, you know, there are many, many um, examples of this. Angels um, coming down to help people. We all have guiding spirits, one on each shoulder. I mean, there's all these traditions of these kinds of things. And once again, when you connect with, somebody whose job it is basically to make sure that humanity gets the light that it needs to keep it alive. That's what these masters do. The, we wouldn't exist on this planet without this life-giving energy that comes from the source. And you read all the traditions because there are plenty of books about spiritual uh, transmission lines, how it's passed on, the baraka is passed down from this one to this one to this one. And when you actually meet somebody who's part of that and is working to do that, you have first-hand information. So, and then they say that this is, other part of this is also true. You take that with a grain of salt. You, want, you begin to think about that much more differently. Um, you know, all of these um, after-death experiences where people come back, there's always somebody there waiting to help them. Um, so there are many different layers of help that go on. And a lot of it we don't see. And, but we wouldn't exist without that. That's, one again, once again, the tradition. That's part of the teaching, the secret teaching. We think that we're here alone, you know, and that we don't have this help. But we do, and we just have to know how to open ourselves to it. 
Mm. And a big difference between being alone and lonely. Yes, yes, it is. Now, Stuart, do you have a particular practice or, or something that you enjoy doing uh, daily that perhaps helps to connect you with uh, not just the awareness of your, you know, of our physical, uh, you know, human support structures, but also uh, with the spiritual guides out there that you mentioned? Well, I do a couple of things. One is I've been in the helping professions for many years. And I find that going to work and helping people as part of my everyday job or everyday life is very important. Also being a member of a family. And that's something called everyday spirituality, where you or spirituality of the marketplace. And you do daily activities with an inner intention to make life better or to, to raise, raise yourself higher or help the person higher. So daily activities, many daily activities, I try to turn over to something higher. Now, I have certain prayers that I say, certain, you know, I repeat the holy name. I do, do lots of things like that. And also in the writing and in the work that I do, I find myself doing that same kind of thing. You know, who am I writing this book for, that I'll be famous and that I'll sell a lot of books and all of that? No, I'm writing it for the one or two people who this might inspire. Uh, when I get on the Internet and I write all articles and I do all of that, so a lot of my daily practice is doing day-to-day -day activities for something higher. And um, early on, I would read the Koran morning and nighttime, three times during the day, and then people ask me to pray for them like most people get prayers. I will pray for people when I'm driving the car, walking, vacuuming, uh, doing all of those things. So I try to incorporate my spiritual practice, if you will, of the, that kind of a thing into a daily day living. And that, and that frees me in a lot of ways to do. I have a lot more time to do things. Thank you, Stuart. And also you say in, um, in almost a snowflake kind of observation that each soul is unique. Can you uh, share a bit about each traveler here in our world? Well, one of the things, one of the biggest learning experiences for me was working in the psychiatric hospital where I saw people who, you know, were suffering a great deal, but they had a common diagnosis, but they were all different. And I got to know them in some very hard times. And, you know, part of my job as a therapist or a worker in that was to help them reach higher. And I came to see very clearly that everybody's different. We all have similar things, similar wants, similar desires, because we're all part of the human family, but we're all different. And we all come here with a different skill set, different things that can make the world better. And even in the hospital, you could see some people who were tell jokes, who would um, go out of their way to help people, other people who were just too sick and into themselves and, and that kind of a thing. So as I, as I went through my life, I began to look at each person both collectively and individually and looking for, and in my particular job that I did, in order to help people, I had to identify their strengths 
what things they were good at to help them overcome their illness. For example, if somebody was frightened and fearful and didn't want to leave their room, I've met many people like that, how can I get them to leave their room? Well, it's a lot easier to get them to leave their room if they're doing something they want to do, something they're excited about, something they're good at. For example, one lady was very good at cooking. And so I got this lady who had been living in her apartment for five, six years and afraid to go out, eventually would help in coaxing and her wanting to do this to become the cook in our club that we had. And so I began to look at people, what are their strengths? What are their skills? And this way I began to see people individually and that we're all unique. I mean, you know, you could listen to science say we all have different fingerprints and all of those kinds of things. But when you look at people and you work with them, you begin to appreciate the diversity and the wealth of you know, their strength, even in missed illness. And then to me, that was a, a profound learning experience. Mm. Thank you for that. It's a strengths-based leadership. I like that a lot. And uh, it reminds me of one of my, um, I guess, favorite, as it were, in quotes, <laughs> folks uh, in the New Testament of St. Paul, um, the apostle who was started off as Saul and, uh, and then who was a persecutor, of uh, Christians and then became St. Paul, who kind of had a uh, big, you know, very, very famous conversion um, experience. But uh, he was the same person with the same skills, which is always interesting to me that in the, you know, in his former life, you know, he was still like a kind of like an attorney who was uh, Jewish and a Roman citizen and and all these different, he was like a very good marketer. You know, he had a great use of words, uh, great skills in these areas and authority and as Paul used a lot of those same skills, he still, you know, he would talk to different communities in different tones because they had different, you know, uh, cultures. And and he might, you know, in some part be the only reason we're still talking about Christianity today was because of his skills. So he was like, he had the same abilities and leadership and strengths, but it was his will that was turned over toward right. to God. And go ahead. His intention. He, he was intending to do these things except for whatever, his boss. Now he's doing it for God. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, so for people who might fear a kind of spiritual awakening as, well, that's just going to make me a whole different person, uh, it's not necessarily that way. It may give you a, d- a deeper experience of who you, who you actually are. It integrates all the other factors. It gets them to work together at a higher level. It helps you to be more efficient. Uh, our, one of our teachers used to say that this was the path for human excellence. Mm. Because what happens is you very clearly begin to identify your strengths and your weaknesses, and you want to become excellent at something because you're doing it for the higher design. Mm. Yes. And as we're talking about this, it seems to lead into a good, uh, this is a good opportunity to go to forgiveness. Um, as you outline in your paper, um, especially the forgiving of self and others, that you include self in that. Can you share about that importance? Sure. Um, 
nobody's perfect. You know, only God and maybe a few enlightened souls are, are, are perfect. You know, we all come here and we all make mistakes. We all hurt people, sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally. And as you travel a little further and you get a little older and you realize and you study some of these spiritual things, you realize that you really want to help people and you don't want to hurt people. And, and in the process of the mistakes that we make as young people or as middle-aged people, that one, we have to forgive ourselves, and then two, if we've hurt somebody, go to them and ask them for forgiveness, and if they won't forgive us, then just turn to God and do that. But the first step is to forgive ourselves for our own failings, our own mistakes, because we don't know everything. Now, when you can forgive yourself, then it becomes a lot easier to forgive somebody else. Um, you know, people make a distinction in their right between forgiving and forgetting. If somebody hurts you, you may not forget it, but you can forgive them if they were honest in their presentation and they didn't mean to do it, or maybe they meant to do it, and, you know, are just asking to help ease the situation. So forgiving oneself is a very important step in all of this because when you don't forgive yourself and you dislike yourself, that's a roadblock. Once again, you have part of your consciousness that's blocking another part of your consciousness from coming forward. You have to accept who you are, and, when, and we make mistakes, and then ask for forgiveness from self and others. Otherwise, this other thing doesn't happen. It's, that's the way it's set up. It's a heavy load that's carried inside, and the, and the other part won't be free and come forward from that. Mm. Uh, they have a saying that the secret protects itself. The inner secret of knowing protects itself because there are all these roadblocks, and you need a teacher or somebody who's traveled this way before to give you a different way to look at this. The teacher doesn't tell you how to do this. The teacher presents an alternative, mm. and you have to be open enough to explore it and possibly accept it. You know, mm. we were never told to accept what the teacher said at point value. We were told to test it out, go read other books, try anything we wanted to try, but take it as a working proposition, a working possibility. Not, oh, he's wrong, or yes, he's right, let me automatically do that. Because you have to come to these understandings yourself. If I say, well, what does Stuart mean, forgiving yourself? What does that have to do with spirituality? Well, think about it. Right. I, you know, I've explained it, I've thrown it out there. You know, if you immediately reject it, that means something else is going on inside of you. The best right. posture is, let me think about this for a while. Hmm. In that neutral way you mentioned earlier. That's right. That's right. Because yeah. if you go, oh, he's wrong. Yeah. That's a giveaway that something's pushing it. Yes. Thank you so much for that, Stuart. That's very valuable because I think it's common for people to be very forgiving of others, but perhaps not let themselves off the hook. And so, yeah, that that can be a sticking place. And so while we're here and... You know, in these years of doing this radio program and speaking with people of faith around the world, 
uh, and each having their own unique experience and journey, uh, I do see a, you know, that we're living in a time where there's a movement or a call to movement of kind of like moving from the head to the heart. We've lived it, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't get me wrong. I really appreciate science and it informs my faith and my work in theology. But in terms of living together and loving each other, it does seem we are being called to move now toward life through the heart. And so why don't we head then to your, I guess, the last point in your paper um, on the secret teachings and, and inner knowing that is listen to your heart. Well, if you wish to know who you are, you have to listen to that part of yourself. And what do we mean by the heart? What the Sufi talks about it as the heart is the, the seat of consciousness. It's the center of the soul. It's the center of all knowing. That that is connected to everything. Connected to God's, connected to other people. Um, you know, there's an inner knowing in us. And our teacher used to say is that the heart got covered over by the years of selfish living living in the world selfishly, and what we had to do was like a mirror, wipe away the dust that covered our heart so we could experience that part of us, which was really the human part of us, the transcendent part of us, the higher part of us. Now, the way to do that, now some people would call that the heart chakra, opening up the heart chakra, and the Sufis talk about the heart as... You know, they are the students of the heart or the way of the heart. The Sufism is the way of the heart. And that's the way of knowing, this inner knowing. And it's physically located, that center is physically located near the physical heart. And so a lot of the exercises that we were given was how to focus the light that came from outside and focus it across our heart so that it would cleanse it and then we would send that love and that energy out to the people that we loved. Because the point of living was to serve others. So here we had this wonderful energy that was cleansing and enlightening us and enriching us. And we were taught to take this energy, which was all around us, and the teacher um, sent towards us, and then take it across our heart. It would cleanse it and then send it out to people we loved. And we would, we would do that for healing. We would do that for just to send out positive energy to them. So the heart is the center of us. It's the center of our consciousness. You know, a lot of scientists think it's the brain. The Sufis, the mystics say it's the heart. is the seat of all consciousness and knowing. Thank you, Stuart. As we come toward uh, the end of the interview, I think you've got something going on, like a perhaps a retreat you might like to share about. Right. Um, in I'm doing I'm doing a couple of retreats this spring. The, the 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 first one, and it's open to just about anybody, is at a place called Kirkridge Retreat Center in Bangor, Pennsylvania, which is near us. It's a three day retreat, and it's the end of May, May 30th, 31st, and August 1st. And we will be going over the Sufi teachings, uh, the golden path, path Sufism enlightenment. And it's uh, $350. That includes um, food, staying in a, a resort area because it's 
people out here in the Poconos. And people can can get more information by going to kirkridge.org. That's K-I-R-K-I-R-K-I-D-G-E, kirkridge.org, www.kirkridge.org. And if people are interested in learning more about the Golden Path, Sufism, and Enlightenment, to come meet me, and we have three days to talk about all of these kinds of things. Thank you so much, Stuart. As always, a pleasure speaking with you. As we come to the end of the interview, I do want to let listeners know that all of your website and contact information and book information will be posted on our homepage shortly at GodspeedInstitute.com. Stuart, thank you so much for being on the program and for being a friend. Oh, it's a pleasure talking to you. I look forward to it. I hope we can help a lot of people. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for the Godspeed Institute today. The Godspeed Institute is an independent educational organization dedicated to promoting religious tolerance and spiritually based living. If you'd like to hear this or any of our previous programs again or send it to someone, simply go to GodspeedInstitute.com. Please send your comments to info at GodspeedInstitute.com. We always enjoy hearing from you. And join us again as we continue to explore all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems. Until then, we wish you Godspeed on your journey.